We have two passages this morning. We have Jeremiah uh, 31 and also Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. But I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Let's pray. Father, what amazing promise that you've given us that we would be your people and that you would be our God. Father, I pray that you would be with Tom this morning as he presents your word. Pray that you will speak to him and pray that we will learn the about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that we will rejoice in your greatness and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Next week, uh, we're going to have a group from Emmaus Bible College presenting during this hour, so uh, we'll have a little bit of a break. Um, and then I think Lenny is going to preach the following week. And then we'll come back and we're going to do a kind of a recap and and finalize this study of the Holy Spirit. Last time we talked about the work of the the Holy Spirit in in indwelling, sealing, securing, and assuring every believer, everyone whom he has drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to consider what the indwelling Holy Spirit does in us and, and what he accomplishes through us. And I'll remind you that my purpose in this series is absolutely not to cover all bases. Um, What we're going to see this morning is is selective, and I'm trying to hit some of the real, some of the kind of foundational uh, truths about the Spirit's work in us and through us. Before we look into that gracious work of the Spirit, I want to be sure first that we have firmly in mind uh, the Holy Spirit's goal in all that he does in and through you and and me. John Owen writes, the Holy Spirit's great work is to glorify Christ. He, the Spirit, is given to us that we too might bring glory to Christ. So what he's saying is that that the Spirit's purpose in 
coming to dwell within us is, is the same, his goal is the same as, as the goal of his work in all that he does, and that is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Owen says, by this rule, we can test every spirit to see whether it is of God or not. And that, that very straightforward truth readily identifies many self-proclaimed representatives of Christ as fakes, as frauds. When a man builds his own fame or fortune on the claim of a special anointing or power that he has received from the Holy Spirit, that man is a fraud. And there are many of them out there. When a man claims absolutely nothing special about himself at all and points only to Jesus Christ, that is viable evidence that that man is a bona fide servant of Christ. A most excellent example of that kind of man in, in the Bible is John the Baptist, right? Jesus said, among all the men that have ever been, been walked on this earth, he's the best, he's the greatest. <laughs> when John the Baptist, before he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. When John's disciples asked him what they should make of this Jesus who was also baptizing people and seeing many people come to him, in other words, John, what should we do about the competition? John's answer was this, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He said, and so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Beloved, that is how a true ambassador of Christ sees himself in the light of Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. So the goal of the Holy Spirit's work is uh, in and through us is always to glorify Christ. But what is that work? What work does the Spirit do in us and through us? Well, I want to... I want to begin with the most personal facet of that work. We've talked about this some before, but I want to look a little further, and that is that the Holy Spirit makes us know God in person. Last time we saw in John 14 that when a sinner hears, uh, in, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when a sinner hears and believes the good news of his salvation in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit immediately comes to indwell that new believer. And in that same chapter, in John 14, Jesus promised his disciples that the Father and the Son would also come and make their abode in and with those who belong to him through the, through the Spirit. The promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit is, is the promise of God in us and with us always, as my brother Don said this morning, Emmanuel, God with us. Not only the central theme of the book of Isaiah, beloved, it's the central theme of the Bible. God with us. We talked a few weeks ago about the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing and illuminating 
God's written word. But the, but the purpose of the Spirit's work through the word is not merely to bring us information about God. It is to bring us into greater and more personal knowledge of and communion with God. In the, in the two New Covenant passages from the Old Testament that my brother Paul just read for us from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God promised Israel and Judah that a day was coming when he, God, would cleanse them of their sin, he would write his laws upon their hearts, and he would cause them to walk in his ways. Ezekiel tells us how God would accomplish that astonishing transformation of human hearts that would cause his people to walk in his ways. And the answer was by putting his spirit within them. In Jeremiah 31, there's one more facet of this new covenant promise that must not be missed. And, and it, is, it is this facet upon which all the rest of the Spirit's work in our lives depends and from which all of that work proceeds. And that other facet is that the indwelling Holy Spirit makes us know God. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that the divine power of Jesus Christ has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter's saying that the, the intimate personal knowledge of God is what equips us for everything that we need for life and godliness. It's what makes us partakers of the divine nature and gives us escape from the corruption that is in the world by lust. All of that's in that first several verses of 2 Peter 1. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus told his beloved disciples, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. That's an amazing statement, is it not? <laughs> it's to your advantage. Jesus told his disciples it was better for them to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them than to have the Son of God standing beside them. Better not only because the Spirit's indwelling presence in them would work even greater works than Jesus did during his 33 years on this earth, that's in John 14, 12, but also because his presence in them would bring them into an even greater personal knowledge of God. The point I pray that we will not miss here, beloved, is that the personal knowledge of God that you and I now receive through the indwelling Holy Spirit is not a lesser knowledge of God than Moses had. When he, when he received the law, when he met with God and spoke with him on Mount Sinai, and when he met with him face to face at the tent of meeting, it is not a lesser knowledge of God than the, the other Old Testament prophets had when they received direct verbal revelation from God and, and had conversations with God. It's also not a lesser knowledge of God than the disciples of Jesus Christ had 
during the time that he was right here in their midst. The personal knowledge of God that has been given to us who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit is a greater, fuller, and more intimate knowledge of God than any of God's people ever had before the day of Pentecost when God poured out His Spirit on His disciples just as Jesus had promised them. It is to your advantage. Beloved, do we believe that? Do we believe that? We, we spend our lives like paupers. We think of ourselves as, as deprived of, of real knowledge of God if we only had what they had. And Jesus says, no, you got more than they had. Rejoice, beloved, rejoice. We have, we have the living God dwelling inside of us. We have the author of the Bible living inside of us. Teaching us. Alongside us. Empowering us. Enabling us. Using us. We are so richly blessed. The Holy Spirit makes us know God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit makes us holy to God. The word holy means set apart. The Holy Spirit sets us apart to God. These are not separate truths. They are inseparable truths. In Exodus chapter 3, the one true God manifests Himself to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai in the form of a flaming bush that was not consumed by the fire. God said to Moses, Exodus 3 verse 5, Do not come near here. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. Now what made that barren piece of dirt at the top of Mount Sinai holy ground? Just one thing. The presence of God. Every time in the Old Testament that, that God appeared in person, the place in which He did so was treated by His people as holy ground. Now, Emmanuel, now the place in which the presence of God dwells among men is within us. Within every man, woman, and child who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. That presence of God in, earth, in us is the person of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God among men. But God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The light has no fellowship with the darkness. And that means that in, that in order for Him to come and dwell within this vessel, He had to make this vessel holy. He had to make that vessel holy, and that one over there, and that one over there. All who trust in Jesus Christ, beloved, have already been made holy in position and in nature. Let me explain. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us when we first believed, that imputation accomplished both of those things. Positionally, we now stand justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. Not because of our righteousness, we don't have any. But because He has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We talked about that some last time. But the imputation of Christ's Righteousness to us accomplished more than a perfect position or standing in the eyes of God. It replaced our sin-enslaved nature 
with the very nature of Christ himself. The righteousness of Christ has been both credited to us and given to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit who remade us. He recreated us in the likeness of Christ in holiness and righteousness of the truth. That's what Ephesians 4 verse 24 says about us. We have thus been made holy in our redeemed position, justified and accepted by God, and in our nature, bearing the righteousness and holiness of Christ through the spiritual heart transplant, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do we believe that? <laughs> so many Christians think of themselves as identified by their sinful behavior. And God says the opposite. He says your identity, that's not it. Your identity is Christ in you. I've said this before, but hypocrisy for a Christian is a complete flip from hypocrisy for the world. Hypocrisy is putting on a mask that, that veils or, or it presents a false declaration of who you actually are. Satan wants you to believe, guys, Satan wants you to believe that for you to do anything good is hypocrisy because you can't do it consistently. You can't do it perfectly. So quit trying at all. Be who you are, Satan says. You're still, you're still enslaved to sin. And you know what God says? He said that's a bald-faced lie that is a lie straight from the pit. You have been baptized into Christ and have been clothed with Christ. And when God looks at you, Christ is what he sees. Is that what you see? Is that what you see in your brothers and sisters? That's what we're supposed to look for. That's what we're supposed to see. What remains is for God to make us holy in practice. And that's a process. Unlike justification, that is not a point in time. It's a process. And that process is called sanctification. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That promise of life given to these mortal, not yet redeemed bodies through the indwelling Holy Spirit applies to us both later and now. It applies later to our bodily resurrection that the Holy Spirit will bring about on our glorification day when He raises us in the likeness of Christ physically and puts the curse away from us forever. These not yet redeemed bodies on that day will be transformed. We'll be set free from the curse. Tommy's already free from the curse, but he doesn't have his resurrection body yet. When he does, he will be the whole person that God created him to be. He won't get his until we get ours, our resurrection bodies. It's going to be quite a day. Romans 8 talks about it. It's adoption day, glorification day. That promise of life given to these mortal bodies through the indwelling Holy Spirit applies later and it applies right now. It applies to the life of the Holy Spirit in us moment by moment, conforming us to Christ in the way that we live each day. In keeping with the promise of God in Ezekiel 36 and in Romans chapter 8, it is God's Spirit within us who fulfills the righteous requirement of the law of God in us. 
as we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. As we walk prayerfully dependent and humbly yielded to His sanctifying work in us. Now, to the extent that we are not yet willing to yield to the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives, He is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. He is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know what that means? That means if our will doesn't align with His, we lose. Praise God. That work is often painful on our side, right? Having our will shut down, not fun. But it's glorious. Hebrews 12 talks about the perfect fatherly discipline of God in the lives of His children. You know what? He says it's always sorrowful, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It makes us share in the holiness of God. Anybody want that? (laughs) One of the most marvelous truths that God wants you and me to know about the sanctifying work of the Spirit in us is that that work is in keeping with our new nature. That's what, was talk, that what I was talking about a moment ago. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to force a square peg into a round hole to conform us to Christ. By replacing our hearts of stone with Himself dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit has already given us the nature of Christ. He's just working that out in us, that new nature. Beloved, believe that. Believe that about, about yourself. Because that's what God says is true of you. That's the reality of our new identity and nature in Christ. We are bearers of God already made holy to bear our holy God in this world. And it's on the basis of that new nature that the New Testament epistles consistently refer to all believers as what? Saints. See, saints aren't just on stained glass windows in high church churches. We're the saints. You know what the word saints means? Some of you know, say it. Set apart, right. Holy ones. Holy ones. Set apart to God. God says, that's who you already are. Right now. And we could spend from now until next year examining... uh, all that the New Testament tells us about the Spirit's mighty and gracious work of sanctification in every believer. But I want to keep keep our view this morning at cruising altitude (laughs) focused on the main things. And beloved, the mainest thing of all, I know it's not a word, but the, (laughs) the, the mainest thing of all that you and I need to know about the Spirit's work in our hearts is that the goal of that work is to conform us to Christ in our in practice, to make us like Christ. In order to do what? Well, in order to do what the Holy Spirit always does. Glorify Christ in you and me and through you and me. So if you want to know where the Holy Spirit is taking you day by day, look at Jesus and you'll know. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Because our new nature is the nature of Christ in us, it shouldn't surprise us that 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 list of the fruit of the Spirit could double as a partial list of the excellencies that we behold in Jesus Christ. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Jesus. That's what the Spirit is doing in you and me. As we abide in Christ, walking in prayerful and complete dependence on the Holy Spirit, He produces in us the fruit of Christ-likeness. And as I said before, if we don't walk that way, well, we lose. Because He's at work to make that happen. Praise God. How does that glorify Christ? By putting Christ on display in these jars of clay. Right? The light of the glory of God in the face of Christ is here. It's hard to believe if you're looking this way, but <laughs> in us, in you and me. The light of the glory, that's, that's from 2 Corinthians 4. The light of the glory of God in the face of Christ in these earthen vessels. Do we believe that? It's what God says. But the sinful habits of our old nature are constantly doing battle against our new nature <laughs> because we still reside in unredeemed physical bodies and we still live on this cursed earth waking up every single day behind enemy lines with Satan doing his level best to cripple us and sideline us spiritually. None of us displays his new nature without daily doing battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that battle must be waged in utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Just as was true of Jesus when he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. Utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cast him out into the wilderness to have that encounter with Satan. And Luke says the Holy Spirit was filling him through that entire event. That's how we live. Thank God that the Spirit continually works in us to defeat the habits of our old nature and to replace old behaviors with new ones that match up with our real identity as the holy ones of God. The Holy Spirit makes us know God. The Holy Spirit makes us holy to God. The Holy Spirit makes us useful to God. Earlier in this series, we saw from many passages of Scripture that our Lord Jesus, during all of His earthly ministry, walked in continual reliance on the enablement of the Holy Spirit to do all that He accomplished. And that passage that was read at the worship this morning from Philippians 2, He humbled Himself, taking the form of, of a man. And He, he set aside, He set aside the much of the fullness of His divinity. Why? To be like us. To be made like us. Dependent on the Holy Spirit. It was in complete dependence on the power of the Spirit that Jesus spoke every word that His Father had given Him to speak and that He did every mighty deed that His Father had ordained for Him to do. He says so. Read John 5. John 7, John 13. Jesus' dependence on the Holy Spirit was voluntary. 
It was by the eternal decree of the triune God in which Jesus was fully complicit. The Son of God emptied himself of many of the benefits of his own divine nature to be made like us in his human nature. And that dependence was by his own choice. Christ's dependence on the enabling power of the third person of the Trinity is our God-given template. Template is just a, it's a pattern to follow. It tells us how we are to live as children of God, bearing the power and the authority of Jesus Christ on earth. We are to do so in complete dependence on the same one upon whom Jesus depended, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Got it? <laughs> Again, Jesus' dependence on him was voluntary. Our dependence on the Holy Spirit is by God's design and at God's command. We can do nothing apart from the work of the Spirit in us and through us. And that's why we abide in Christ. In both Testaments of the Bible, the Holy Spirit equips and empowers God's agents and image bearers to do God's work, God's way, and God's creation. That's what it means to be an image bearer and agent of God. You do God's work, God's way, and God's creation as those who are like God. We're not God, but God made us sufficiently like him that we get to be his representatives on earth, right? And he redeemed us to make sure that the part of us that had been disqualified from that, that assignment has been, has been made new. Uh, and this, this last part is very critically important, and that is the part about to do God's work. God's way and God's creation. God did not put His Spirit within you and me so He could equip us and enable us to live out our agenda for our own lives. He put His Spirit in us to equip us and to enable us to live out His agenda for our lives. Those are different, in case you hadn't noticed. When those who call themselves preachers of God's Word make the Holy Spirit out to be the servant of our health, wealth, prosperity, predictability, and control, they are lying to us. They are lying to us. And there are people making millions of dollars with that lie. Filling churches with that lie. One of those guys is worth $600 million. Just got a new Learjet. In the book of Exodus, after God commanded Israel through Moses to build a tabernacle to be His dwelling place in the midst of the camp of Israel, the activity of the Holy Spirit kicked into high gear in the lives of the Israelites. The Holy Spirit supernaturally enabled and equipped two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, Exodus 31, to oversee all manner of tasks necessary for the creation of the tabernacle, the tabernacle curtains, the priestly garments, the cutting of gems for those garments, the creation of special oils and incense and utensils for the system of worship. The Holy Spirit gave all of the necessary skill and resource to every Israelite who was involved in the building of the tabernacle and in the creation of everything associated with, in any manner, with this way of access to God that God had given to His people Israel really just a picture of the real way of access. And that's Christ, by the way. 
the result, the result was that everything about that earthly picture of the way of access for the people of God to draw near to the presence of God, everything about it was made just as God intended and commanded. In other words, the Holy Spirit personally superintended the human element so that the outcome was divine in origin and not human in origin. That's really important because the way of access to God can never come from the mind of men. It has to come from the mind of God. So if you read Exodus 25, verses 1-9, through 9, you'll see God says, I'm telling you, Moses, this is how it gets done. This is how to do it. And then He gives all the instructions. And then He enables everything that He's, that he's commanded, right? And listen to this. This is so cool. Fifteen times in the last two chapters of Exodus, 39 and 40, leading up to the glory of God, filling the tabernacle in the last chapter of the book, and another ten times in Leviticus 8 and 9, which narrate the consecration of priests. That's 25 times in just four chapters of the Old Testament we find this description of Israel's activity. And it's a description, I'll give it to you in a second, it's a description that is unique to that one brief period of time in Israel's history. You never read this anywhere else. Here's the description. Just as Yahweh commanded Moses, so they did. How'd that happen? God took over. God superintended. The Holy Spirit took over the human element so that the, the result was divine. Are you with me? This is really important. This pattern that we see in Exodus is repeated in God's incomparable gift to mankind of His, His Word, His written Word. The Holy Spirit overshadowed, superintended the human writers so that the result was divine in origin and not human in origin. And the same is true of all that God is doing in and through you and me as His redeemed children today. Now that doesn't mean that we don't do things that are not of God. It means that what God does in and through us is of God. He takes over. The Holy Spirit does eternally valuable and powerful things through you and me. It's not my purpose today to discuss the fine points of the gifts of the Spirit. If you care to check it out, we did address the gifts of the Spirit in some detail when we did our recent study of 1 Corinthians, and that's available online. At this point, all I'll say about the gifts of the Spirit is that every single Christian receives one or more spiritual gifts as special enablement to do something that God uses to build up the body of Christ so that we will together worship God as one and do the work of God on earth as one. One other thing I'll point out here is that <laughs> being the recipients of the Holy Spirit's work in our heart and through our lives does not make our life easier or safer. It does the opposite. Acts chapter 6, and by the way, I, I was going to say, just ask Stephen, the deacon, Stephen. Acts chapter 6 tells us that Stephen was, uh, he was one of the first deacons appointed by the apostles of Christ. They picked several men to do things like wait on tables when the church gathered together so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the 
to the ministry of the Word. But God had bigger plans for some of those deacons, didn't He? Like Stephen and Philip. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. When he was brought before some of the synagogue officials to explain himself, verse 10 of Acts 6 says they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. Unable to cope with it. What did that look like? Did that get Stephen fame and fortune and a big fan club? No, it got him stoned. It got him dragged before the same temple court that had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus, the Sanhedrin. As he stood before that council, verse 15 says that they saw his face like the face of an angel. Where do you think that came from? The indwelling Holy Spirit. And that, of course, made them back off, right? Quite the opposite. They did allow Stephen to make his case. And what followed in chapter 7 is one of the most magnificent sermons in the Bible. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, delivered a lengthy, condemning indictment against Israel for their chronic and constant failure to hear and to heed the word of the Lord throughout their entire history. And he walked through that whole history. The Holy Spirit gave Stephen an astonishing boldness and stunning clarity. Surely that amazing sermon, that shaming sermon, put those Jewish, leaders in their, Jewish religious leaders in their place and made them stand down, right? No, quite the opposite. The last several verses of Acts 7 are particularly stunning. But being full of the Holy Spirit... Stephen gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You, you know in other passages it talks about when Jesus returned to heaven, he's seated, he was seated at the right hand of God. Now he's standing. He is paying attention. He is, he is fully engaged in what's going on there with Stephen. He saw Stephen standing at the right hand of God. And by the way, Jesus is ready to receive Stephen because he knows exactly what's about to happen. And he said... Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul when Jesus, when Jesus blinded him to make him see. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Which means that's New Testament speak for he died in the Lord. Why did I go to that passage? Well, because you and I need to know and embrace this truth that every faithful ambassador of God has known and that is that being made bearers of the Holy Spirit in the world absolutely does not make our lives easier or safer. It makes them harder and far more fraught with danger. The Holy Spirit in us paints a Christ-shaped target on us in a world that is filled with very capable 
archers. But for us who have been marked by the Spirit as signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered in the presence of our beautiful God, the flaming arrows of the evil one, even if they become real rocks or arrows <laughs> or swords or bullets, are no threat to our well-being at all. None at all. Let the arrows of the evil one fly. We have the armor of God. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The one who saved us for himself at the price of his own son's precious blood and put his spirit within us will never leave us and never forsake us. If his spirit draws us into the furnace of severe persecution or even death for the sake of Christ, we will have lost absolutely nothing of eternal value. The Spirit is in us and with us to the end, and therefore, it is and always will be well with our souls. Do we believe that? That's what God says. That's what's true. The Holy Spirit finally inhabits and empowers our communion with God Romans 8, verses 26 and 27 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the flip side of where we started this morning. The same Holy Spirit who makes us Know God personally and intimately also makes us known to God. He delights in creating and nurturing our intimacy with God. At the heart of that in intimacy, beloved, is conversation. Conversation between God and us. On the God-talking-to-us side of that sweet communion, when we come humbly to the Word of the Lord to behold and meet the Lord of the Word, and that's the best way to come to the Word, when we do that, the author of that word who lives within us shines the light of his perfect knowledge of the heart and mind of God into our hearts. 1 Corinthians 2. He makes us know God through the word. And on the us talking to God side of that blessed communion with God, the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us stands in the midst of our prayers to our Heavenly Father. He renders our imperfect thoughts and words perfect in the ears of our Father, even when we can't come up with any words at all. He makes us known to our Father perfectly. I hope you already noticed that each side of that conversation demands something from us. First, we have to hear from God. We have to come to the Word of God in which He personally reveals Himself to our minds and hearts by the work of the Spirit. And we have to talk to God. We have to pray. The Holy Spirit inhabits our prayers. He makes our hearts known to the heart of God. That conversation with God is our present communion with God. One day we'll be talking to Him face to face. Now we talk to Him by... We converse with Him by listening to Him in His Word and then responding and talking to Him. 
I have no doubt at all, beloved, that the most determinative reason that so many Christians feel distant from God is simply because they take no time, they take so little time to commune with God. There are people, including Christians, who have lived for decades with a spouse, but who have little or no intimacy with that spouse, no real and present personal knowledge of their spouse. Why? Because they have no communion with their spouse. They peacefully or maybe not so peacefully coexist in the same house. They have the same kids, the same checkbook, some of the same friends. They may even have some level of sexual intimacy, but they don't know each other in the here and now the way God intended a man and a wife to know each other. Why? Because they do not take the time regularly to commune with one another. The heart of communion, beloved, is conversation. The sharing of each other's hearts. As we pray in conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit to do the heart talk in both directions, we're doing what Fred Sanders calls praying with the grain. I love that. Anyone who's done any carpentry in here knows that if you take a thin, a large thin piece of wood, like a like piece of plywood, and you, you do a rip cut on that wood, across the grain and that skinny piece of wood that comes off of it it's real easy to break because if you if you go across the grain then the grain's going this way everywhere in the wood and you just you can snap it right over your knee but if you take that same big piece of wood and you cut it with the grain the piece that you cut off is very very strong listen to what sanders says about how prayer actually works he says it is because of god's triunity that we have communion with god in prayer Once we understand that the Christian life is constituted by the Trinity, we have opportunity to pray in a way that is consistent with that constitution. He says, if the Spirit unites us to the Son and reconciles us to the Father, we have an invitation to pray accordingly. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is not just the theologically correct way to pray. It is the way of praying that draws real spiritual power from being aligned with reality. The reality is that Christian prayer is always tacitly Trinitarian, whether we recognize it or not. Aligning with that reality means praying with the grain instead of against it. Last thing I'll say is this. Brothers and sisters, the beating heart of our communion with God and of our dependence on God is continual conversation with God. And both sides of that conversation are inhabited and empowered and supernaturally blessed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're not on our own. He loves to facilitate that communion. We behold God and we meet with God by the mighty work of His Spirit through His written Word. And we respond to that beholding of God by the mighty work of His Spirit in our prayers to God. Our sweet communion with the lover of our souls is by the mighty work of the Holy Spirit graciously given to dwell within us every moment of every day until He brings us safely home to God and we see Jesus face to face. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank You for making us the beloved children of the living God through the perfect sacrifice of Your Son. 
We thank You for giving us Your Spirit till Your work in us and through us is completed on this earth. We thank You for the blessed communion that we enjoy day by day as we come to Your Word. As we come before Your throne of grace, as we worship You together with the saints, and as we go out into the world as Christ's chosen and, and very well-equipped ambassadors, indwelled by Almighty God in the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank You. We praise You in the name and for the sake of our beautiful Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.